We've been going through our series, This We Believe, and tonight we come to part number two of that which we began at the end of June. Let me preface, let me preface by saying this. You know, in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke chapter 9 is recorded for us an event that comes almost in the middle of all of those three books. And the placement of that event is significant. It's significant because it acts as a, as a fulcrum, because after this event, the text that follow pivots in a certain direction, and the events in the life of our Lord begin to be mentioned with a certain sense of urgency and immediacy. Uh, that particular event, which I'm thinking about, takes place as Jesus is walking with his disciples uh, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this is a, a group of villages that were located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus is walking with his disciples, on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And so these disciples, they responded to him and they told him, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And so he continued to question them and then he asked this to them but who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that can be asked and answered. It is important, and the rest of the scriptures show us why it is important. It was the most important question to be asked. It was important because the wrong answer to that question will mean eternity apart from God in hell. And the right answer to that question will mean eternity with God in heaven. And so the answer determines the destiny. Now we continue our study through our doctrinal statement, which we have called This We Believe. And today we come to the study of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or in theological terms, Christology. Now, in one sense, it doesn't matter what we believe about Christ. Our belief doesn't change the truth of who he is, but it only affirms it. It doesn't matter if you and I believe he existed or not, because our believing doesn't make it possible. But in another sense, it does matter what we believe about Christ, because everything that we do will be determined by what we think and believe about Christ. If he is one of the many options for you in the market of religion, then you won't act like he is God and he is Lord. The question is, what do we believe about Christ? Or rather, what should we believe about Christ? And like we do in all matters, we ask, what does the Bible have to say about Christ? And so tonight I want to share with you seven things about the Lord Jesus Christ that will reveal, that will bring to the fore who he is and what he has done. First of all is the fact that he is God, that Jesus Christ is God. The Bible claims that Jesus is God. The word 
uh, theos, that means God, is used primarily to refer to God the Father in the New Testament. But there are several places in the New Testament where it is also used for the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn there, but in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you go down a few verses in verse 14, John goes on to say that this Word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Perhaps you remember that incidence where Jesus, after his resurrection, comes and visits his disciples. When he visited them the first time, Thomas, one of the apostles, was not with the group because of some reason that is not mentioned in the text. But the next time the Lord appears, he is with the group. The first time that he wasn't with the group, he told the rest of the disciples that I'm not going to believe in Jesus unless I see him with my eyes. And so when Jesus appears to him, Jesus says to him, put your fingers here and see my hands. Uh, put your hands here uh, into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And what does Thomas answer? Thomas answers and says to him, my Lord and my God. A clearest, at someone attributing divinity or deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 3 to 5, Paul writes this, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. And then he says this, this, Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul again writes in Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, we don't know who the author is, but in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, he quotes Psalm 45, verse 6, and he says this, But of the Son, he says, who is this he? It's God the Father. But of the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is God the Father addressing God the Son as God. What more clear indication do we need from the Scriptures that Jesus is God? In fact, second letter that Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, Simon Peter, a bond servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only the Bible overall makes this claim of, about the divinity of Christ, Jesus himself claims to be God. He claimed to be the second person of the Trinity. He is divine. He is co-equal with the Father. He is of the same essence as God the Father. And he's also co-eternal with the Father. He claimed that he did not come into existence like you and I come into existence. Rather, he claimed that 
He existed before he was physically born in this world. Anyone you know that made that claim? In his conversation with the Jewish leaders, he would say this in John chapter 8. In verse 56, he said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. The Jews who were listening to Jesus speak in this way knew exactly what he was claiming. Jesus was claiming to be God. How do we know that? Because in the immediate next context of that verse, it tells us that they picked up stones to kill him. John the Baptist testified about the Lord Jesus Christ, saying in John chapter 1, verse 30, This is a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The Bible claims the divinity of Christ. Jesus himself claims to be God. We see, we see a proof of his deity in a number of other places in the scriptures as well. Remember when he was baptized, all the three members of the Trinity are represented there. Remember when he gave the Great Commission, all the three members of the Trinity are represented there too. In fact, Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, putting all of them on an equal footing. Not only does he himself claim to be God, he also possesses divine attributes. What are some divine attributes that Jesus displayed? First of all, he is self-existing. In John chapter 1, verse 4, we are told, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We are told in, uh, further in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8, that he is immutable, that he does not change. I can guarantee you, 10, 15 years back, if I had met you, you would be a different-looking person than you are now. We all change as human beings. But Jesus, about Jesus, it says, being God, being divine, he is immutable. He does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's also eternal. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. That is, Father of Eternity and Prince of Peace. He's not only self-existent, he's eternal, he's immutable, he's also omnipresent. Uh, doesn't he claim in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. He's not only omnipresent, he's omniscient. He knew what men were thinking, he knew what was in man. Uh, just after his resurrection, when he visited his disciples again as they were fishing, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. And so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. He is omniscient. But not only that, he's omnipotent. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He calmed the storms. Uh, he removed demons from those who were demon-possessed. He healed the sick and he gave life to the dead. In other words, the Bible makes a very objective, a very tight, uh, something without loopholes, 
case for the fact that Jesus is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the great I am, that he is the Theos, he is God. Jesus then, first of all, is God. Secondly, Jesus is a creator. Jesus is the creator. He created all things. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Notice what Paul writes there. He says, he, that is Jesus, is the invisible image, or image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things, John goes on to say in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, the writer says, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, that is, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. It was Jesus through whom the world was created. Everything that exists, both invisible and visible, was created by Jesus our Lord. It was Jesus who said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light. It was Jesus who spoke, and everything came into existence. He created all things, and he created you, and he created me. Now, regardless of where and when you were born, regardless of who you were born to, regardless of whether, the, whether you're male or female, you were created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only he creates, but if you are still in Colossians, notice verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The universe and everything that exists in it is held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a stray molecule or atom in this universe that doesn't perform under the sovereignty of our great God, Jesus. Think about all the laws, or natural laws as the scientists would like to call it, and all the forces that hold the world together. It is all held together by the wisdom and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only sustains everything in this world, he sustains you And he sustains me. You know, so far, at least speaking for those of you who are here, including myself, we've gone to sleep and woken up. And we find that our heart is still beating. Some of us are in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s. If I were to ask you, what did you do to keep your heart beating? Did you get up in the morning and pump it a little bit? I think it was Vernon McGee, a great preacher of God's word, who, at, who, who this quote is attributed to. He says, this is God's universe, and in this universe, God does things his way. This is God's universe, and in this universe, God does things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. 
Now, what is the best response to knowing that Jesus is God and creator? It is to bow down and worship him. It is to submit your will to his will and then do what he commands and demands of your life. And when you do that, that will be the best life you can live in this fallen world. Jesus then is God. He's also the creator. Thirdly, he is a man. He is a man. By this we mean that he is a human being just like you and me. And we see that in his birth, don't we? He, he was born just like you and me. He had a human birth and bo- he was born into a human line. Now Paul, writing in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, a text that I quoted earlier, he says, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to flesh. He also writes in Galatians 4, verse 4, And when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was a human being just like you and me, but he was born of a virgin. Now the virgin birth was not a cause of his deity, nor was it a cause of his sinlessness. Rather, the virgin birth tells us something about the uniqueness of the person of Christ. Uh, What what are some things that we can think of as we think of his virgin birth? Uh, First of all, it tells us that no human effort could ultimately bring about your salvation and mine. If our salvation was to accomplish, then the initiative for that must ultimately come from the Lord. That's one of the implications or understandings of what a virgin birth is. The virgin birth of our Lord made it possible for the uniting of the full deity and full humanity in one person. How could God become man through the virgin birth? The virgin birth also made it possible for the second person of the Trinity to be a human being without inheriting sin. And virgin birth is also, by the way, a fulfillment of a prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Remember that, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew goes on to tell us what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. He was born just like us, but he was born of a virgin. He also grew like any other human being. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and then verse 52, it says, The child that is Jesus Christ continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then in verse 52, it says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. As a human being, in his human nature, he grew physically, he grew intellectually, he grew mentally, he grew emotionally, he grew psychologically, and socially. He went through all of those growth stages as a human being. He had a physical body just like you and me. John chapter 1 verse 14, John reminds us, the word became flesh. Uh, When he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he would say, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. If we lived in the first century during the time of Jesus in Israel, 
you would see him as you see any other human being. His physical body had similar experiences like our physical body would have. He was hungry after having not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, he slept. Uh, he became tired from traveling. When people saw him, there was nothing really distinct about him. He looked just like you and me. In fact, Mary Magdalene in the Garden of Gethsemane, and rather not in the Garden of Gethsemane, but in the garden where the tomb was, uh, thought that he was just a gardener in his post-resurrection appearance. But you might say, why go to such lengths defending his humanity? Well, first of all, because it is true uh, that he did become a human being. Uh, secondly, within a generation of Jesus' ascension, people began to rise up and say, you know, it's too much to attribute humanity to God. Jesus really wasn't a human being. He was just God. And so to counter those claims, the apostles began to write epistles. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, it mentions that Jesus came in the flesh, and to deny that is heresy. But thirdly and importantly, he came as a human being. It, it reminds us of the fact that only a human being could represent you and me. And so it's important to highlight the fact that Jesus was a man. The overwhelming testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus' humanity is, is real. He was a human being, just like you and me, except without sin. If you were, or if you have already read our doctrinal statement, it summarizes on the basis of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. It says, in becoming a man, the second person of the Trinity laid aside his right to the full prerogatives of coexistence with God and took on an existence appropriate to a servant. He did this while never divesting himself of his divine attributes. He only surrendered his pre-incarnate glory, but nothing of his divine essence. He was tempted just like you and me. But unlike you and me who are tempted both externally, that is from outside, and internally because we are sinful people, Jesus was not tempted internally because he was without sin. But he was tempted externally like we read in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was a man. That brings us then to the fourth thing that I do want to mention about Jesus. And the fourth thing about him is only possible because of what has already been mentioned so far. And that is that Jesus is a Savior. Jesus is our Savior. You know, his becoming man is described by theologians as incarnation. And the purpose of incarnation was to reveal God to, to man. But it not, not only revealed God to man, it was also to redeem man. It was to bring about man's salvation. You see, we cannot understand Jesus as our Savior unless we accept the Bible's description of who you and I are. The Bible describes us as sinners. Uh, we have sinned. We have missed God's mark, His perfect standards, and we have fallen short of His requirements from us. Uh, but God, in His grace, does not leave us in this sinful condition and in this sinful nature. He takes on human nature so that it would be possible for you and for me to be right with God. The question is, how does he accomplish this salvation? 
The Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfect life, a life lived that met God's standard, and he died a death that we should have died. Uh, theologians commonly call this the active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Active obedience in keeping God's law perfectly and passive obedience in facing God's wrath on the cross of Calvary and willingly submitting himself to God in suffering and dying for you and for, for me. In his life of 33 years or so, he met God's standard of holiness. In his life, he met God's standard of holiness. And in his death, he met God's standard of justice. Resurrection, then, is a stamp of approval from God that Jesus' life and his death were acceptable in his eyes. You see, Jesus' death was voluntary. In John chapter 10, verse 15, it says, Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's also substitutionary. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we are told, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life, his death, his resurrection. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter writes, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You see, because Jesus died, when a sinner believes in him, the sinner is delivered from the punishment, the penalty, and the power of sin. And one day, the sinner will also be delivered from the very presence of sin. That's what the Bible calls glorification. You see, when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are declared righteous. You are declared right with God. Oh, what a glorious reality is that. A sinner declared to be right with God in God's eyes because of the death of God's only begotten Son. You know, a number of things immediately follow as a result of that. You're given eternal life. You are adopted into the family of God. You and I are called children of God. What ensues then is progressive sanctification, which is that daily we become more and more like Christ. Daily we become more holy as we submit ourselves to Him, as we obey Him, as we follow His direction in our life. What a glorious reality this is that Jesus is our Savior. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this is true of you. You are saved. You're redeemed. You are sanctified. You're now a child of God. But how can we be sure of these realities? What takes place in the Scripture or even in history that tells us that we can be sure of these realities? Well, it's because of and on the basis of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In raising Jesus from the dead, God places his stamp of approval on Jesus. It was as if God is saying, I accept the life and work of Jesus Christ on behalf of those for whom he came to die. Not only that, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a guarantee of a future resurrection for all believers. 
You see, that's why Paul was able to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we, we mourn when someone we know who has trusted the Lord dies. But we mourn not as people without hope, but with hope because one day we will see them. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul writes, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. We don't have to fear death. Because to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. He is our Savior. Fourthly, fifthly rather, He is our Lord. See, when we use the word Lord or in normal uses, the word really means someone with authority and power, someone who is a master or a ruler. It was used generally of earthly authorities. Even in the scriptures, it is used this way. But the word, when it's used in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, it has much more significance and much more meaning than just authority and power. The word became connected with the deity of Christ, uh, that is, his divine nature. Remember when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, from there on the apostles, when they used the word Lord for Jesus, they were pointing others to his divinity. When the gospel was shared with the Gentiles in Acts 10, Peter would declare that Jesus is Lord of all. The statement Jesus is Lord then means that Jesus is God. If when we say Jesus is Lord, we mean Jesus is God, then why mention this as a separate category? Why not include this under his deity? Yes, why? Because of what it implies. To call Jesus Lord has implications for how you and I live as believers. You see, when you call Jesus as your Lord, you're committing to obey him. You're committing to follow his direction for your life. You see, when the first century believers called Jesus Lord, they were fully aware that Jesus as God, who has all authority on earth and in heaven, is making demands on their life, and they were willing to give up everything, including their life, as they submitted themselves to him. You see, when you call Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you are committing yourselves to obey him. In fact, our Lord himself says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? When you acknowledge Jesus' lordship, then you're submitting yourself to his authority. Uh, he is the lord of your life as a single man, as a single woman. He's the lord of your life as a married man, as a married woman. He's the lord of your life if you are a husband. He's the lord of your life as a wife. He's the lord of this church. He's the lord of 128. He's the lord of all. You see, if Jesus is your Lord and my Lord as he is, then he owns us and then he alone has the right to tell us what to do and how to live. Paul reminds us that you calling Jesus Lord is also something that is enabled by God himself. He writes in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that only those who are genuine and true believers will call Jesus Lord. There is no 
bifurcation between calling him Savior and then after some years as Lord. No, once you call him Savior, he is your Lord. And here's a warning. As believers, we all bow our knee to him as our Lord. But God's word also reminds us that one day, believers and unbelievers will bow their knee to him. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, if you're not already bowing the knee to Jesus as a believer willingly, one day you will be forced to acknowledge the identity of Jesus as Lord. If you're sitting here and if you've not placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Let me invite you to consider his claims. Let me invite you to consider the claims of the scriptures on his behalf as it portrays him as the only hope for you and I to be right with God. Jesus himself would say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus then is God. He is creator. He is man. He is savior. He is Lord. Sixthly, he is a mediator. A mediator. A mediator is one who mediates between two entities. That is, he or she acts as an intermediary to work with two entities to bring about a settlement or an agreement at the end of that process. And in bringing about that agreement or settlement, the mediator resolves the dispute. The Bible tells us and it informs us that there is a God And that there are creatures created in his image. Men includes men and women. And between these two entities, that is God on the one hand and men on the other, there is a breaking of a relationship because of sin. And that man by himself is never able to pay the penalty of breaking God's law and its demands. And the only way for there to be a settlement, a a resolution of that dispute is for God to become a man and be that mediator. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You know, in mediating for us, Jesus acts as our defense attorney. Those of you who are involved in, in law, you would understand this quickly. Others, I'm going to make it as simple as I can. It's as if... Jesus goes to God the Father and presents our status as innocent before him, not because something we have done, but on the basis of what he has done on the cross. It's on the basis of his life and death that he pleads on our behalf. In other words, the defense attorney is one who took the penalty for you and for me. Uh, This was the role of the Old Testament priests. Their role was to represent people to God but their priesthood actually ended with their death. The writer of Hebrews actually reminds us that Jesus' priesthood doesn't end with his death because he is a risen Lord. And that is not the case with him. He alone is one who continues to live forever, and therefore his priesthood is something that is permanent. Hebrews chapter 7. And because of this, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. 
Why? Because he lives and makes intercession for, for them. His mediation does not end when we are declared righteous. When we are declared just with God, his mediation doesn't end there. Actually, his mediation continues for you and me even right now. Listen to the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's as if every time we sin and we genuinely repent of our sins, Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, says, I have shed my blood for him. I have died for her. Forgive him. Forgive her. And what does God the Father do? He forgives. A couple of verses earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, When you confess your sin, God is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. On what basis does he do that? On the basis of the mediatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a wonderful mediator. He is God. He is creator. He is man. He is savior. He is Lord. He is mediator. And seventhly and finally, he is the judge. You know, to the Jews and the Jewish leadership of his time, Jesus would say, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to his son. That is, Jesus came in his first coming as a savior, but in his second coming, he will come as a judge. You know, there are a number of judgments mentioned in the scriptures. And the first judgment will be the judgment for all believers. You see, judgment for believers? Yes, why don't we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as we bring this to a close. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. What is what Paul writes to the Corinthians? He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. How will this judgment that Paul is talking about be brought about, we'll go down to the second letter of Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Notice verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
believers then will face judgment, not for their salvation, because the penalty of their sins has already been paid for, like Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but for their works. And so you see, what you do, what I do, matters. But when will this judgment take place? Now, we can't say with certainty, but we know that there will be believers during the tribulation and also during the millennial kingdom. So it's best to think of this judgment taking place around the same time as the great white throne judgment, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's as far as the timing is concerned. But there's a second judgment that is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, If you're interested, it's mentioned in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 onwards. Uh, This judgment is also called the judgment of the nations, but it precedes the millennial kingdom. Here, those who have survived the tribulation are being judged. There in the Gospel of Matthew, sheep and goats are mentioned clearly differentiating between believers and unbelievers. But there's a third and a final judgment that's mentioned in the Scriptures. Uh, To that I want to point you now. First, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Why don't we turn there as we close. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Notice what John writes there. Uh, This is the great white throne judgment. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, This is the judgment of all unbelievers who have died from the beginning of history, and they will be, as John says here, judged on the basis of their deeds. They were condemned and they were thrown into the lake of fire. In his first coming, Jesus came as a savior, but when he comes again, he will come as a judge. He alone is the final judge of all who fail to place their trust in him as their Lord and savior. So as I close, I ask you, are you ready for his coming? Are you ready for him? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Christ? Is he God? Is he the creator? Is he the man? Is he savior? Is he Lord? Is he your mediator? How do we best respond as we think of who Christ is? Uh, Quickly, I want to highlight three things. First of all, if you don't know him, then don't miss the opportunity to trust him even tonight. Believe in his name. To the Philippine jailer who asked, how can I be saved? Paul responded, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him. As a believer, I encourage you to express your thanks to him. 
Uh, that is, even as you sit here, perhaps after you're done with our small groups tonight, as you head back to your homes, your apartments, I think of ways in which you can express your thanks to Him. The only thing that you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it possible for Him to come. There is so much to be thankful for. The more you express your thanks to Him, there's less and less space uh, to complain or to waste your time in things that you shouldn't be wasting in. But thirdly and importantly, worship Him. He alone is worthy of your praise and worship. If I can tie all of these things together, it would be this. Be a good student of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, study his life. Uh, perhaps if you haven't been in the Gospels for some time, take up a Gospel and read. At the most, uh, Matthew requires about an hour and a half or two at the most to read through it. Read his life. Read the epistles that talk about what Jesus taught in the Gospels. Make him the objective and the subject of your study. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, these moments that you give us to reflect on the life of our Lord. Uh, thank you for the reminder from your word that he is God, uh, that he is one who has created everything. That there is nothing that is created that has not been created by him. And not only that he is man, that he took on human flesh, that he could represent us. Only a man could save us because only a man could represent us. But only a God could save us because only a God who would come in the form of a human being could live the life that we live, yet be without sin and accomplish salvation for us. So we give you praise and thanks. Uh, for those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior, a wonderful reminder that he's also our mediator. Uh, that one, when we sin and repent, uh, that he who is seated at your right hand is our advocate. And because of his blood that was shed on the cross, that you forgive us. Uh, that you are a just and a faithful God and you forgive us of all our sins. Father, we give you praise and thanks. I do pray for even our time in the small groups now. We pray that you would be honored and exalted. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.